As I mentioned, we're starting a new series in Ephesians. So this morning, uh, our passage is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So you probably thought by that, uh, that passage that I'm going to be done in about five minutes, right? It's two verses. Uh, let me say this. It's a little bit... Um, this sermon this morning is going to be a little bit interesting because in one level, it's, it's an introduction to this epistle. And so in one level, I'm going to preach through the entire book of Ephesians for you this morning, okay? And then we're going to hearken back. I said hearken. That's a horrible word. I'm going to go back <laughs> to, uh, that's in my notes, hearken, right? Um, go back to verses 1 and 2 and hit that. Now, I will promise you this. Uh, you'll get to brunch. You'll have some eats, even perhaps even hit the cut-a-thon, fundraiser, all that stuff. We'll get you out of here on time, but all that said, let me pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll step in. So, so God, um, the everlasting God, from everlasting to everlasting, um, the one who has come and revealed himself in Jesus, the one who has sent his spirit, and we pray now that you would do the incredible thing that you would actually speak to us this morning, and I realize how, on one level, uncanny that even feels to say that, but we just trust you and your word, and we pray now that you would give us hearts that would be ready to hear and ready to listen, and wills that would live out the implications. And we ask this for the sake of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, when, uh, some, when my wife and our three kids moved here a little over five years ago, the first couple of years, I, I worked quite a bit of time uh, at, St- at, at State Street Starbucks. And if you've ever been on State Street, you know, it's an incredible place because you have hipsters. You have um, <laughs> Coasties. Anybody know what Coasties are? Okay, some of you do. You have the homeless. You have professors. You have neo-Marxists, you have liberal Democrats, you have like four Republicans, you have, <laughs> you have Jews, Muslims, Christians, atheists, you have the LGBTQ community, you have all of this in just these few blocks, just doing life together. Now, as diverse as all these groups are, they all have at least one thing in common. And that's this. They're all finding, they're all building their identity on something. Each of them are. Some of it's rooted in their last name. Others, it's rooted in their orientation. Some of it's rooted in politics. Some of it's in economics. Some of it's in religious doctrine. But each one of them is building this grand narrative to the question of, who am I? Who am I? And here's the deal. We are, in this room, (laughs) no different than them on one level. All of us, each one of us is building a repertoire of this question of who am I? We're all building our identity, our significance, our, perhaps I might say it this way, our due north. 
where we center our lives. And then one of the things I loved about being down there was that everybody just wore it on their sleeve for the most part. Like, there was no question. Like, okay, I know who you are, you know? Like when Ecosi showed up for coffee, I knew exactly who they were, you know? So here's the deal. This, this letter to the Ephesians that Paul writes in roughly A.D. 60 or so is written to a group of churches in and around Ephesus where modern-day Turkey is today. And this letter is ultimately it's about identity formation. Paul is writing them, and he's wanting them to understand who they are. Now here's the deal. I would say this, culturally speaking, most of our Western thought tells us if we're going to find out who we are, then we need to look within. And I'm not, I'm not saying that's a horrible thing necessarily, but what Paul's going to do is he's going to say this. He wants them to understand who they are as it relates to one person, Jesus. He wants them to understand who they are in the person and work of Jesus. That's the due north. That's the centering piece for their community. That's the centering piece for their individual lives. And let me just demonstrate this for a quick moment. So if we were to look through the first 14 verses of this letter— I don't know if I counted every one of them, but at least 14 times Jesus is referred to. Like you can't turn a corner, go into another sentence without Jesus being talked about. It's all about him. And he wants them to understand who they are in him. So let me just show you one verse, a couple actually, in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Speaking about God, this is what the Apostle Paul writes, that God making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. Now, you'll notice there, Paul uses this word mystery, and Paul's not talking about like an Agatha Christie novel he just put down and kind of answering the question of who done it, but mystery here refers to a teaching or a truth about God that in previous time has been hidden. And Paul is saying this, Paul is saying, guess what? This is no longer a mystery. Jesus has shown up, and this mystery has been revealed. And the text says this, that God's plan is to unite all things in Jesus, things in heaven and on earth. Now, let me say this. If you're here this morning and you are perhaps not a Christian, perhaps you're curious or skeptical, and we say this all the time, we're really glad you're here, that you would even step in and maybe in these surroundings and, and try to figure this out. But, but let me suggest this, if that's you this morning. This letter, what it is suggesting is that the entire world, since its creation till its very end, if it were a novel and we were characters, that the whole thing is summed up in Jesus. That, that he's the hero, that he's the essence, that all of our personal narratives are ultimately defined by this grand meta-narrative that is Jesus. 
It's all about Him. And so as we begin to unpack this identity of who we are in Jesus, what, what we're suggesting this morning, if you're here, is, is not that Jesus is like another kind of menu board option that, oh, I could, I could base my identity on this over here, or this over here, and maybe throw a little Jesus in. No, no, what we're suggesting and what Paul is saying here is that he's it. He is the linchpin of all of history. This is what it is all about. And I would say this, if this is not true, then let's just go build our identity on something else. That's what I'm suggesting. That's what this epistle is saying, that it's all about him. Now, if you're here and you're a follower of Christ, you might say, well, I get that. I mean, I'm here, right? You know, I brewed some coffee back there. Like, I agree with this. You don't have to convince me. So what's the big deal? Why, why would I pay attention to this letter? Why is this significant? Well, let me put it this way. There was a woman named Hetty Green, and uh, she was known as America's greatest miser. When she died in 1916, she left an estate valued at $100 million. In today's dollars, if I have it right, that would be $2.2 trillion. That's what she had in the bank. Hetty Green ate cold oatmeal daily because it was too expensive to heat the water to warm it. Um, her son actually had a severe leg injury, and it was so severe that she delayed because she wanted to try and find a free clinic to take him. She delayed so long that her son's leg had to be amputated. I mean, do you see the insanity of this? She's got $2.2 trillion in the bank, and she's sipping on cold oatmeal, and her son's leg's getting amputated because, I don't know why, but she's not living according to what she has in the bank. Three times in these first three chapters, Paul talks about this identity in Christ, and he uses it in language of riches. So in chapter 1, verse 7, it says this, the riches of God's grace. Ephesians 3.8 says, the unsearchable riches of Christ. In, in 3.16, Paul writes, the riches of his glory. You see, if you're a Christian, don't you understand this? You have an identity in Christ that involves what Paul would say is, you've got at least $2.2 trillion in the bank. But let me suggest this, that all of us in one way or another are living like Hetty Green. You know? We're all serving up cold oatmeal. We could have gone out for a really nice brunch, at least, right? Um, we have these resources available to us in Jesus, but we live like they aren't ours. We don't make the connections to our lives. So let me give you a couple examples. Let me give you one from my own life. It was about 10 years ago, uh, I was a college pastor in, in Iowa City, and uh, we had this large group experience on Thursday nights, and there'd be, you know, a couple hundred students that would show up. And I remember five minutes before that happened, I would stand out in the hallway, and it'd be like the worst part of the week. Because in my mind, here's what I was hoping. I was anxious. I was wondering, are they going to like me? Are they going to accept me? How many people are going to show up? Because based on how many show up, that, 
that is ultimately how I was going to be, quote-unquote, defined. I was heady green eating cold oatmeal. Why? Because here's the deal. I could articulate who Jesus was. I even did it those nights. I could articulate what he had done. I could articulate to you that I was forgiven, that I had been adopted into the family of God. But functionally speaking, I was operating under a different identity. (laughs) I was running to the approval of others in my identity in ministry and performance. Listen, for each of us who follow Jesus, hear, hear this. You can confess that, yes, I know this to be true, but let me tell you, there are functionally things in your life where you are settling for cold oatmeal. You don't understand the trillions you have in the bank in light of what Jesus has done. You don't ultimately live as, with, as ultimately who you are in him. Some of you are filled with bitterness. You're filled with anger. And you need to know who you are in Christ. Others of us are making choices not based on who we are in Jesus, but who will be if I can just get that position, or if I could just get that guy, or if I could just get that girl. Others of us would say, you know, here's the deal. I've got parts of my life, like I'll show you a little bit of this, but I've got parts over here that no one knows. Why? Why? Because if you're in Christ, don't you understand, you're accepted by the God of this world because of what Jesus has done. So why are you hiding? Do you feel that? You are functionally operating different than what the gospel says about you. This letter is written to Christians so that they might not settle for cold oatmeal, but they might feast on the banquet of who they are in Him. And that is life-changing. Like, can I just tell you how excited I am to even begin this series? Not because you all need this, but because I need this. I mean, do you get that? Like, I need this. Because that changes things. It changes us. One of the most surprising things about Paul and his ministry is if you go through his letters, not one time does he pray for the circumstances of those he's writing to change. He doesn't ask God to change the circumstances. Now, I'm not saying you, you shouldn't pray for those things, but that's not where Paul stuck his feet in the ground and prayed. L- listen to what he prays in Ephesians 1, 17-18. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What is he praying there? He's praying that they might understand the truth of who they are in Christ more deeply. That's what he's praying. That they might grasp it. That they might not settle for cold oatmeal. And and this is our prayer. That we might be more deeply rooted in this second year as we begin Redeemer City. The second year we might be more deeply rooted in this gospel. That we might know who we are. Now, I say all this, and, and you can kind of get this thought that maybe this is just all theoretical, or maybe this is all like, it is, there's some deep theological truths, but we can kind of go like, well, 
What about every day? Does it, have, does it have anything to say about everyday life? And in fact, put it this way, Ephesians 1 to 3 is about who we are in Christ. 4 to 6 is really, chapters 4 to 6 is walking out this identity in all of life. Let me just give you a, a couple of things it deals with. So Ephesians 4, 1, this is, this is where Paul turns the corner. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And this is how he walks it out. He talks about things like, what do I do? How do I relate to people? How do I walk out this identity when there are people who are just really hard to love, who have really rough edges? Like, what am I to do there? What does this identity look like in that relationship? Or what do I do when I'm dealing with just bitterness and anger? What does it look like to walk this identity out in the midst of those circumstances, in the midst of what I've been dealt with in my life? What does this identity speak to that? What does it look like to walk this out as it relates to what I do with my body? As it relates to sex and everything else? It, how about alcohol? It deals with that. Think about this. It talks about marriage. It talks about what marriage is. It talks about husbands and wives. It gives roles and distinctions to those things. It speaks about marriage and relationship there, it says this identity actually speaks to that. It, it even talks about parents and kids. At the end of it, Paul looks out and he, he talks about this world is, he, he basically says this world is not spiritually neutral, but that there is opposition that we cannot see with our physical eyes. And he says this is how you walk this identity out in the midst of this world. So I hope you understand, Ephesians is all about us grasping more who we are in Christ, and then in light of that, what it looks like for, the, for that identity to be lived out in the everyday rhythms of our life. So that's sermon number one. All right? Done. I promise the second one will be shorter. It's only two verses, all right? Um, okay, I didn't have any good transition, so that's just what you get, all right? Um, uh, first two verses, we're going to look at two things. One is, we're going to look at the authority of Paul, and then secondly, the two things I think we need that this letter offers. So the authority of Paul. Paul begins this, and it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. So Paul straight up says that he is an apostle. It's not a word we throw around a lot around here, but this word in this sense, in this setting, in this context, is saying this. It's a technical term that means that Paul is fully authorized by God with a message. Hear that again, that Paul is fully authorized by God with a message, he is in a position of authority. It's like, it's like a police officer who flashes a badge. It's like an ambassador of a country saying, I represent this country. Paul is saying straight up, I have authority. He doesn't just stop with his authority. He says, by the will of God. He's not saying, like, I went to a career fair, and there's this booth that said apostle over here, and I gave him my, you know, resume, and I signed up, and they said, hey, that sounds great, you know? That's not at all. Paul's saying this wasn't my idea. 
God was at work in my life. He, he called me into this. Now, we've got to pause for a moment here because I don't know about you, but when, like when you hear the word authority, especially in Madison, like, you know, all of a sudden, there's just a level of cynicism, of suspicion. We don't normally trust those in authority. It's not in the nature. And there's a number of reasons for that. Um, and, then, and not all of them are necessarily bad, but let me just hit on a couple. And perhaps if you're here and, and you're new to the Bible and you're wondering, why should I listen to a letter written by this guy? Or why should I even think that this is true? You might ask the question first, like, like is Paul legitimate? You know, I mean, we've, I mean, come on, let's be honest. How many of you here had fake ideas? We know what people can do. We know what they can be imposters, right? Is Paul legit? And not only that, but here's one of the problems with authority is when people are in authority, what happens, right? It can corrupt. You know, Lord Alton once said, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. In other words, we might just simply ask this question, how does this person in this authority, how has he used his power? Has he used it to perhaps exploit others for his own gain, or has it been the other way? Those are all really good questions to ask. So let me just do this. If you're, at, if you're wondering, is Paul legit? If you're wondering, how has Paul used his authority? Let me just draw us back to who Paul used to be. And, and for some of you, this is going to be a reminder. And for some of you, this is going to be new. This is important. There is no small amount of irony here. See, Paul, he did not grow up in a Christian home and go off to a seminary and then enter a vocational ministry. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but that's not his story. If you go back to the book of Acts, which records the life of the early church, his name there is Saul. And Saul was not a Christian. In fact, not only was Saul not a Christian, he didn't like Christians. He thought they were teaching heresy. In fact, he went to great lengths. The first time you introduce to Saul's and is when actually he's, he's like a, he's taking people's coats as other people are throwing stones at a Christian named Stephen and they're killing him. That's how it begins. And don't you catch the irony? How, I mean, how did, how does that opening scene fit with Paul writing a group of Christians to help them understand their identity and the one that he was just stoning. Do you, do you sense the irony? Like, what happened between there and then? So you can go back to the book of Acts and read it, but here's the, uh, here's the short version. Paul's on his way, traveling to actually throw other Christians in jail, and Jesus shows up, blinds him, and two days later, another Christian shows up, Ananias, lays hands on him. Something like scales fall from his eyes. And he put his faith in Jesus, and he was baptized. And he immediately began to tell others that Jesus is the Son of God. I hope, like, I hope if you're not a Christian right now, you're really winsomely confused. Because this makes no sense. That this is where this guy began, and this is where this guy ended. And in case you're wondering, if you want to know how Paul uses authority, do you know what the irony is? Is as he writes this letter to the Ephesians, he's in prison. 
the shoe is on the other foot? It all began with him throwing Christians in prison, and now he is a Christian, and because he is a Christian, he's now in prison. Paul has absolutely lost everything. He's lost everything. He's not in a position of power. He's in a position of weakness. But what is he doing? He is simply laying his life out so that others might come to know of the person and work of Jesus. I hope, I hope if this is a reminder for you, I hope you, I hope that almost just leans us in, endears us to this letter that with certainty we are, we are hearing this man who has this authority. It's so ironic, is it not? Where he comes from? All right, last thing. Two things this letter offers I think we desperately need. Verse 2 says this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I think we need some grace. I think you need grace. Um, the great theologian Bono, in an interview a number of years ago, said this, You see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know what you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe, and yet along comes the idea called grace. To upend all that as you reap, so you will sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of our actions, which in my case is, a very, is very good news indeed, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. Uh, I love how he puts it, that grace is this idea that love interrupts our lives. And if I could just add a little bit to what he said, in Jesus, God meets us and runs after us when we were running the other direction from him, right? Not because we were worthy of it, but he comes after us. And, and Paul begins this letter and says, grace to you. There's grace in this letter. There are things in this letter that you don't deserve. It's, this is grace to you. Second thing, peace. Grace to you and peace. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen the, um, the Corona commercials um, if you've seen one, you've seen them all. It's pretty much a beach, some really attractive people, and somehow they put it so you feel like you're there. You know, like they put the bottle, and like you're sitting in the chair, and you're just looking out, you know. And you, you see that commercial, and <laughs> what is that advertising? If I get my hand on this bottle of Corona, then all this chaos over here in my life, I can just sit back, I can relax, and I can have a little bit of peace. Now, I'm not suggesting that peace here is the same as that, okay? Don't, don't hear, say like the pastor is the same as the corona. But, but I, I will say this, there, there's something about that notion of rest and peace that we all desire in our lives. Um, and um, what Paul is suggesting here, that in our identity in Christ, Here's, here, here's the beauty of it. We can have something that we cannot lose. See, peace is available only to those who have something to which they cannot lose. Do you understand that? That our identity in Christ, because of what he's done, Paul's suggesting that this letter 
what he's offering here, if you understand it, if you get it, if you grow in it, that there is peace. There's peace available here. So let's pray for that to happen. Let's close. So Father, we um, just come before you and uh, just pray over these weeks that we get to spend together in this letter that you would uproot the places in our lives where we are finding our identity in other things. Father, would you do a work that we might understand the person and work of Jesus more? And we don't want to come with an attitude, I've got this figured out, I've been, the, I've been around this block, I know these terms, I know these words, I've heard this story a thousand times. We want to be a people who come humbly under your word and are changed by it. God, would you help us to be a people where whatever it is and how we're walking this out in our daily life, would you help us know where that does not fit with who we are in you? And would you do a work in which you would change us by your word in the midst of your people, by your spirit, would you please do that for the sake of this community, for the sake of this city? God, I pray for those this morning who are not Christians. As they explore, as they consider the claims of Jesus, that you would reveal yourself to them, that you would open their hearts more and more to you. In and through the work of your Spirit, we pray. Amen.